Introduction to Sources for Anglican Clergymen, presented by Jessamy Sykes. Good afternoon. As you can say, my name is Jessamy Sykes. I've worked here at National Archives for just over a year now. I'm currently a government policy officer in archive sector development, but uh, I only moved there about three weeks ago. So prior to that, I managed the second floor, the map and large document reading room. But before I came to Kew, I worked at Lambeth Palace Library, which is the historic library of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and which I hope qualifies me to give you a brief introduction to sources for Anglican clergymen. Just to say, I will be focusing on those serving prior to 1996, although much of what I'm going to talk about will apply to clergymen who are currently in service. All right, before I go any further, I'm going to clarify what I mean by Anglican. And the Church of England, as we know it today, was established in the reign of Henry VIII. During the 17th century, the Anglican Church became known as the Established Church. And since the settlement of 1689, the Church of England has become the, the mother church of the Anglican Communion. That is to say, a group of separate churches which are in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And in the course of this talk, I will principally be focusing upon clergymen in the Church of England and what is now known as the Church in Wales. And I will touch briefly upon sources for churches who served the church abroad, but I say only, only briefly. Priests are known by a variety of names. Obviously, there's a particular hierarchy in any given church, and so it is in the Church of England. At the very top, we have the Archbishop of Canterbury, and very fractionally his junior, the Archbishop of York. Below the Archbishops come various... Uh, we have deans and, and bishops... Deans are priests in charge of cathedrals. Bishops have seats in cathedrals, but not actually uh, responsible for that church. Below deans, you have canons and provincial canons. These are often pointed as, as honorary sort of seats in recognition of long service or particular acts. There are 117 bishops and assistant or suffragan bishops in England and Wales today. And below the bishops, who have the sort of more diocesan responsibility, you have rural deans, even in cities, I believe, although I think they're now being called area deans. And below the deans, we have rectors and vicars, and curates and deacons. Most people, I imagine, be doing their research sort of parish level, the higher up you get, in a way, the more detailed information you might find about a clergyman's life. Most parishes have either a vicar or a rector. You cannot be both or have both. A rector has a life interest in the parish, which means they are entitled to receive tithes. A vicar doesn't. When you're looking at sort of parishes, you'll usually find a curate, although technically all priests are curates. Even the Archbishop of Canterbury is technically a curate. But in terms of parish level, if someone's described as a curate, it usually means that they're in training or they're recently ordained. Deacons are priests in training, and you are appointed and then ordained deacon before you can be ordained as a priest. This process normally takes two or three years and has done pretty much through the ages of time as far as I can establish. And the process of being ordained is usually combined with curacy. You may find a priest refers to himself as a clergyman, a parson, any of these names, or a clerk in holy orders. It depends on the period, but you, you find them across the sources. You may also come across references to non-stipendary ministers. An NSM, as they tend to be known, can be any of these, although they tend to be around parish level as a rule. They do the same duties as any other priest. They are ordained in exactly the same passion, but they aren't paid for the privilege. It's a fairly modern innovation. Um, 
sort of dating from around the 1890s when the church sort of recognised there were people who wanted to take on holy orders but didn't actually want full parochial responsibility. So they brought NSMs in then. I'm going to start with the more commonly known sources, which are the Crockford's clerical directories, the clergy list and the alumni lists for the major universities. Crockford's clerical directory, or to give it its full title, being a statistical book of reference for facts relating to the clergy and the church, with a full of index of facts relating to the parishes and beneficiaries of England and Wales and Ireland, and to the charges, missions, etc. of Scotland and the colonies of Europe, North Africa and the Mediterranean than any ever yet given to the public. Crockford's is quite an institution. If you ever have an opportunity, do read the editor's letters, because particularly around the year 1900, they are absolute genius. Some of the, uh, the comments, they were not afraid to name and shame clerics that they thought their entries weren't up to scratch. If you, even if you're just looking through, do you have a look at the stuff that surrounds the, uh, the basic priest info, because it's really interesting. Crockford's was established in 1857, and it's still running today. Nowadays, it can be searched online. I believe there are plans to make the historic entries available online. Nowadays, it's produced digitally through the website and in paper form. And I believe they're planning to retro-convert the historic editions back. As well as the career histories of clergy across the Anglican Communion, Crockford's also contains useful information about succession lists for all the dioceses in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, as well as that of the colonial bishops and the bishops in foreign parts. So if you do find your research in clerical ancestors who served abroad, it's worth having a trawl through these. Because there are fewer priests who served abroad, often you find men are serving in higher positions than perhaps they might have done if they'd been in England and Wales. It's well worth having a good trawl through these. With regards to foreign parts and colonial, colonial covers the historic British Empire and foreign parts is pretty much everywhere else. If an entry has a cross next to it, it means that the uh, cleric in question did not fill his entry form into the satisfaction of the editor. So that was you named and shamed in front of your entire profession and recorded in history. And actually it's quite disconcerting reading number of pages with how many of these crosses there were on there. The other clerical directory you may wish to consider looking at is the clergy list. It predates Crockford's by a few years, by 16 years, but it disappears towards the end of the First World War, presumably because Crockford's by this point is far outpacing it. At this point I should also mention the clergy guide, which was in fact the first clerical directory. It had a similar format to the clergy list and it's far less detailed than Crockford's. It was even more short-lived, but Earlier, it existed, the clergy guide was around between 1817 and 1836. And although it was minimal information, it did demonstrate how useful such a publication could be to the church. So if you're looking for clergy who were serving between 1817 and 1857, then the clergy guide and the clergy list should suffice for your purposes. But once Crockford's is around, you'd be best off sticking to it. Lots of institutions hold copies of Crockford's and the clergy list. There are certainly copies in our library. The clergy guide is a bit harder to come by. The British Library have copies. I believe the National Library of Wales have copies. And Lambeth Parish Library has a full run of Crockford's, the clergy list and the clergy guide. And it is possible to visit the reading of the Lambeth Parish Library. I'll tell you a bit more about that later. The other principal source you should have a look at are the alumni lists for the universities. This is particularly important if you're searching for clergy prior to the existence of the clerical directories because most men of the church had degrees, not all, but most. 
And because the university is limited in number, there are only a given number of places where a cleric might have gone to university, particularly prior to 1850. Incidentally, they didn't have to read theology as their degree prior, I think practically until the sort of 1900s, so theology as a compulsory subject only became compulsory fairly recently in sort of the history of the church. The universities you may be looking at, particularly are Oxford and Cambridge in England, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Glasgow and St Andrews in Scotland, Trinity College in Dublin and St David's College in Lampeter for Wales. Most of these universities have got published alumni lists, though most don't publish them after 1900 for data protection reasons. And these are very, can be very informative for research. The Oxford volumes are available on CD, but Cambridge, the Cambridge volumes aren't out of copyright yet, but I think there are plans to make those available on CD eventually. When you find the college at which your ancestors studied, and the alumni lists will tell you this, particularly for Oxford and Cambridge, it might be worth you contacting the college archives to see whether there's anything held there, and particularly if it's quite early, early modern sort of period, it's, it's worth looking then. The alumni lists are great because they link up sources and they link people. And if you're really lucky, you might find brothers, parents, or even grandparents listed too. If there's a family you always go to one particular college, you might find two, three. I think the record I've seen is five generations in the space of two or three pages ready and, and waiting for you, basically. The alumni lists also put Oxford and Cambridge particularly tell you what status the son is. I appreciate I'm being quite focused on the men here, but women didn't come into the church until I think it was 1994 or thereabouts, fairly recently. So you find out whether you've got the only son, the second son, the fifth son, which is quite useful context. You then get a short career summary. Some of the information won't be in the clerical directories. You often find also the date of death, if you're lucky, or even sometimes the year. The other thing you may need to know if you're researching clergy in Wales is that records relating to the church in Wales were transferred to the National Library of Wales and Aberystwyth when the church in Wales formally separated from the Church of England in 1996. On that note, all the parish registers for Wales or surrogate copies thereof are also held by the NLW. So these are the traditional and best known routes into researching clerics, but there are other sources you might want to consider looking at particularly if you're researching in the early modern period or if your cleric served abroad at any stage. One really useful source is that of the bishop's registers. Each bishop kept a register of business and appointments within his diocese. These can be invaluable for research and where they survive, the bishop's transcripts can also be of interest. Bishop's transcripts are returns from each parish which were supposed to be sent in annually and were handwritten until the early 20th century. So an opportunity for you to look at the handwriting of one of your ancestors, which most people don't get until the 1911 census, if nothing survives within their family. Parish registers where the originals survive offer another opportunity of looking at the annotations in the parish registers for your ancestors. Once you've established which churches your clergyman served in, the possibilities for commemoration of this particular service are almost limitless. Many churches have similar displays to this list of the incumbents of the parish church of St Mary the Virgin, Witten under Edge, which lists all the, all the former incumbents um, and their degrees and, in most case, dates they covered. Many churches have similar things to this, be it Bibles, bells, vestment chests, organs, gravestones, Many priests leave some, some reminder of their time in that church, and these are brilliant for padding out the life of the, 
of the person and the career that you're interested in. Clergymen abroad. One of the fascinating things about leaping through Crockford's is seeing where people served. Some of the careers are so varied they seem almost improbable. It was actually quite common for young men in the church to serve abroad, particularly before the First World War. And there are a number of mechanisms through which a clergyman might gain his appointment abroad. He might have connections there already, families, for instance, living in the colonies. He might well have been brought up abroad, but returned to England for his education. This is not uncommon even amongst the middle classes. If you do find that this is the case, the passenger lists are always worth checking up on as well. Although, obviously, these are limited by the dates they cover. There were also another number of charitable institutions who recruited and sent out young priests to what they termed foreign parts. These include the Society for Promotion of Christian Knowledge, SBCK, the Christian Missionary Society, or CMS, the Christian Faith Society, and the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. SBCK and the CMS both still retain independent archives. The Archives of the Christian Missionary Society, along with a number of other missionary archives, are held in the special collections at the University of Birmingham. If you do find you have an ancestor who worked abroad and you suspect they may have been a missionary, you would be well advised to get in touch with Birmingham. The resources they have in there are second to none. They have some really fascinating, well-catalogued material there, which, if you, know, if you do find you have someone who fits into that category, you could find a wealth of information in amongst them. The papers of the CFS and the SPG are held at Lambeth Palace Library. These have been fully catalogued and are available via the library's online catalogue and access to archives A2A, which you can access through our catalogue. These two are particularly worthy of note because they date back to the late 17th century, although the published indexes don't actually start until 1701. They've also got name and place indexes which is useful if you want to have a quick sweep through it rules it out quite quickly, or it helps you realise that in fact there might be material in there. They're not just useful for genealogical purposes, but also for giving a context to life in the colonies. So I have an example from the SPG papers. This is a catalogue entry from a letter from Barbados, from Benjamin Dennis to the Secretary of the Society, saying that his ship reserve um, was in Carlisle Bay in Barbados, and it's dated 26th of March, 1711. His ship put in there instead of going on to Virginia because it was running short of water, and that his wife bore a son on journey, apparently prematurely, as the result of being frightened by the sight of a privateer. So this is a fairly typical entry for the SPG, but sadly pirates don't come off that often, but fairly routine mentions of, of everyday men and women. This is just a chap who's going out to serve as a priest. He's not a bishop or an archbishop. He's just a fairly run-of-the-mill chap who happens to be serving eventually in Virginia and he does get there and, and settle quite happily. You'll be relieved to know. The various missionary societies between them had people stationed all over the world. Another source worth investigating for clergy who served abroad are the run of the Bishop of London's papers. Only in the last hundred years or so has the Diocese of London relinquished its responsibilities for the colonies and further afield. So particularly before the existence of Crockford's, there may be reference to the journey, recruitment, activities and returns of particular priests. As with many sources, people who misbehaved, fell foul of the law or generally created any other kind of rumpus are more likely to feature. The Fulham papers have been, again, held by Lambeth Palace Library and have been fully catalogued. 
And again, you can check these out on their online catalogue on access to archives. It's name index, so you, if you do have a particular name you're interested in, you can just tap that in and see what it comes up with. If a clergyman does feature in the Fulham Papers, then it's also possible that he may appear in the papers of the, the contemporary Archbishop of Canterbury. Although the Archbishop's papers are weeded and appraised, a vast amount of material does survive. For instance, Archbishop Bell's volumes ran to 250 volumes, and that was after it had been appraised and weeded down to what was considered to be the bare minimum. So there is a, when I say a wealth of material, I mean there is literally volumes and volumes. Many of the Archbishops who've served Canterbury have had keen interests in work abroad. Cataloguing work is ongoing, but the papers I think are available. I think Ramsey might be about to go. He's next, so it's up to 1990s. It's, it's pretty well advanced and, and well catalogued as well. There are a variety of other sources you might wish to consider looking at. These cover a variety of time frames. The papers of the Society for the Relief of Poor Pious Clergymen, later the Poor Clergy Relief fund or corporation can be of interest. Although the church was often seen historically as the appropriate career for the second or third son in the upper classes, there were just as many impoverished clergymen about. This fund advertised heavily in Crockford's, I believe it's still in existence today, and as well as Crockford's in other relevant publications. And it also publishes a list of the beneficiaries each year, which is open and accountable practice. You can see each year who's been given a grant to essentially survive. If you've got a patron who's particularly stingy or a patron who's not interested in your parish or indeed no patron at all, then you can have literally no money to live on and you survive on the charity of your parishioners. So the clergy could be incredibly poor, hence the existence of this particular fund. The Royal Commission on Ecclesiastical Discipline only ran for a short time, but if you have ancestors who were in the church at this time, it's quite interesting. It essentially investigated what was considered to be popish or high church practices, and so they give a number of examples within it, hundreds and hundreds of, of cases that they dealt with where parishioners reported their priests for practices that they didn't consider appropriate. So it's always worth having a look through if you do have ancestors who were serving in the early 1900s, just to see whether their names crop up. Again, these are fully indexed. Finally, the Commonwealth records, as they say on the tin, relate to priests during the Commonwealth and directly afterwards. So if you're researching in the 17th century, it's worth looking at the printed index to the Commonwealth records. Um, there's a guide by Houston, which is worth, again, fully name and place indexed. And you can have a look and see if there's any material lating. Almost all the material survives from this by some miracle. If you have clergy interest in this, in this period, it, it's well worth having a good look at, and all of these are held at Lambeth Palace Library. As well as the specifically ecclesiastical sources, you shouldn't neglect the more traditional genealogical resources either. The Kelly's directories are brilliant. The parish priest has traditionally been viewed as a pillar of society, and such men are normally therefore included in the Kelly's directories. You should also, if it's relevant, look at the census. Lastly, we come to something which may negate the point of this talk altogether. Since 2006, King's College London, um, the University of Kent, the University of Reading, the British Academy, Lambeth Palace Library, the Guildhall and various other academic institutions have been compiling a database of all the references to individual clergymen in as much archival material as they can process. This is an excellent and reputable project 
and will no doubt reveal a vast amount of information about clergymen in the past, which has previously been almost completely inaccessible, particularly before the clerical guides became established. But it does rather run the risk that should you discover a clergyman in your family tree, when you come to research him, you may find someone else has already beaten you to it. This event was recorded live on the 18th of June 2009 at the National Archives in Kew.